Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVA Nudge Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVNH Consulting, and with me is my colleague and friend, Suzanne Kirkendall, CEO BVNH Consulting North America. And also, for this episode, I think it makes sense to share this, a Columbia alumni. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Eric. I'm very excited to be joining you for this episode and delighted to be introducing our guest today, Professor Eric J. Johnson, who is a giant of the behavioral economics field. Eric is a faculty member at the Columbia University Business School, where he's the inaugural holder of the Norman Ike Chair of Business and director of the Center for Decision Sciences. His research examines the interface between behavioral decision research, economics, and the decisions made by consumers, managers, and their implications for public policy, markets, and marketing. Professor Johnson's research and comments have appeared in numerous journals, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Financial Times. And his research has been published in Science, Psychological Review, Psychological Science, Nature Neuroscience, Harvard Business Review, and many other consumer, economic, marketing, and psychology journals. Eric has co-authored two books, Decision Research and The Adaptive Decision Maker, and he has just published a brand new book called The Elements of Choice, Why the Way We Decide Matters, which will be at the heart of our conversation today. Eric, welcome to our Be Good podcast. Thanks so much, Susan. Great to see you. And bonjour, Eric. And that will be the end of my French, but I'm very happy to be here. Uh, thanks a lot. So, Eric, uh, we are really excited to have you for this uh, new episode of uh, Be Good. My friend and uh, one of my mentors, Cass Sunstein, who has joined us twice on the podcast, has written about you. Eric G. Johnson is an absolute giant which is, I think, coming from him, a great compliment. So, Eric, this is another reason we are very excited to have you join us to share some of your insights. But before talking uh, about uh, your book, I would like to come back to the beginning of your career, if okay, uh, with you. So, Eric, after graduation from Rogers uh, University, you received a PhD in psychology from Carnegie Mellon University. Can you tell us about how you came to be interested in behavioral science? I even don't know if it was the right name for this discipline at that moment. The discipline didn't exist, so I, I don't know if there was a name. Uh, you know, it was the days when people were doing psychology with rats. You know, I.O., you know, Skinner was the kind of thing, conditioning we were taught. And I was very lucky to take one course on cognitive psychology from a psychologist um, who actually then left the field. But he was very, what, what uh, he did get me to read was some of the very first work done in cognitive psychology. And I had other friends who pointed me to the works of a psychologist named Herbert Simon. Um, and I thought this was the greatest thing. 
And most of the courses, people were saying, oh, they're giving us all this theory. I want to know how to do X. They wanted practical stuff. I was the one odd kid in class who actually said, oh, what are the details of that study? How did that work? And I love statistics. So it just was something that was inside me. It was something I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed my job as a research assistant in helping people debug, actually, on um, on punch cards, actually, you know, data sets and computer programs. So I thought it was really interesting. And then I just read uh, Simon's book, Sciences of Artificial, and said, this is an exciting way of thinking. And so I applied to a couple of graduate schools. My choices were actually, I was going to either be a computer programmer, um, go to graduate school, or uh, actually play bass. I was actually uh, playing bass in a couple of bands at the time. And I was basically saying, well, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, which pays better? Uh, do I get into the good graduate schools? I was lucky enough to get into Carnegie Mellon. And so, like many people, my path is full of accidents and, and good fortune. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, could you share with us, you mentioned Herbert Simons, but any mentors that had a particularly strong influence on you? Do you have any researcher or other people who have played an influential role in your professional career? Yeah, certainly uh, Herb was one of them, although I didn't ever really work with him. He was on a committee and a great advisor um, actually said, you should become more mathematical, which I thought was interesting. Um, but I was lucky enough to do a postdoctoral fellowship after that with Amos Tversky, um, which was, you know, at the time, sort of, he, he was well known, but nowhere like today. Um, so another piece of good fortune, I got an NSF fellowship and Amos was kind enough to have me for a year. Um, we did a couple of papers together. And sometime in that, in that time period, I hooked up with a uh, odd, um, at the time, economist named um, Richard Thaler. Um, who tried to hire me at Cornell. I didn't want to live in the woods at the time, but uh, it, it was, we started working together and writing together. And again, just good fortune, running into the right people and striking up really exciting projects. And uh, is there a, one experiment or several you have conducted that stands out in influencing your thinking? You know, I've always been impressed by two very different things. I, I sort of am schizophrenic. One way is I really like the big demonstration experiment. Um, you know, the classic Kahneman-Diversky framing studies, for example, things are very simple. I used to think they were too simple. The statistics, you could use a simple, you don't even use a t-test. You do a very simple test and you count and you see the results. Nothing very fancy. The other part, so essentially, you know, working with Amis in those beautiful demonstrations um, that he and Danny Kahneman did. You know, th those are amazing. So, for example, showing that lives saved versus lives lost, you know, was an absolute classic. You know, I, I read that in my um, very first years in graduate school and thought, that's beautiful. I wonder if I can do that. The other is a very deep cognitive bend that is understanding the process, that is understanding what goes on between people, people's ears when they answer those kinds of questions. And this is, you know, the kind of work that was done at Carnegie Mellon, where people actually look at, try and figure out what's going on inside the brain. At the time it wasn't scanning, but basic computer simulations. So how do people answer a question? And can we actually model the steps that come in between there? Those are two very different perspectives, but they really made it, both have driven my career. Absolutely fascinating. So Eric, we want to turn now to your book. Um, Eric, 
Singler and I were talking just before this about how this is quite probably the clearest and most thorough book we've read on choice architecture. No surprise coming from you, but we were really, really delighted to read The Elements of Choice, um, which, as we all know, is just recently released. So what we'd like to ask you first is, can you tell us more about the inspiration behind writing it? How did the idea for this book come to you? The title sort of remind, reminded me when my uh, when my publisher suggested of a little book called The Elements of Style, which is a book that everyone who's an undergraduate gets you know their hands slapped and say read this. It tells you how to delete unnecessary words. It's and it's a great book about writing well. What I wanted to do was write a book that's sort of unfortunately it's not short because the topic's very complicated, but. Yeah, I wanted to write a book about how to do designing decisions well. And, you know, I've been doing research in the area for 30 plus years, and I thought it'd be nice to have a, a guide. It's meant not to be a theoretical tome, although I think understanding the process is important. It's meant to be a how-to. It's meant a book that's meant for choice architects, or as I call them, designers. Absolutely. And so why do you think the question of choice architecture is so important? It's all around us. There's no no choice architecture option. Every choice has an architecture, whether the designer knows it or not. And so we all are, if we don't pay attention to choice architectures, and Collins would say, we're leaving money on the table. We could help people make better or worse decisions um, by paying attention to that. In fact, we often are not paying attention. That means people are making worse decisions than they could. Can you give us some concrete examples of the power of choice architecture to either improve or harm our decision making? So one of the very obvious things is the order of options. That is, you know, I'm always, there's always an order. You know, I always say something first if I'm asking you, where do you want to go to eat for dinner tonight? I have to mention first, second, third, fourth. It turns out it's not perfectly obvious, but it's obvious that the first has an advantage in many cases. Um, and the story I'll tell you briefly about that is a former student of mine who's a medical informaticist. These are the people who designed the electronic health systems doctor, see? And she found that doctors were prescribing expensive brand name drugs in the hospital. Um, and this was actually costing people a lot of money since generics are one-fifth the cost of a brand name drug. So for analogy medicine, I take the pill is $20, 20 cents if it's called fexofenidine hydrochloride, but a dollar when it's called Allegra. And that's a real waste of money since they're pretty much the same thing. Um, she did a diagnosis. This is, goes back to the process. She said, why aren't people doing this? She, and it turns out doctors don't know the name fexofenidine hydrochloride. They prescribe lots of drugs. That's a hard thing to remember. And so what she did was change the interface, the electronic health record, to simply, if you stop typing Allegra, A-L-L, it typed out instead, it auto-populated the word fexofenidine hydrochloride. You don't know how many times I have to practice to be able to say fexofenidine hydrochloride. But long story short, that dropped the percentage of people who prescribed brand name drugs from over 90% to 46%. And most importantly, they didn't change it. They were happy with it. There was a barrier, which was one that's based on memory. So to me, that's a good example of how not paying attention to the choice architecture matters and how paying attention to the process, what it is that goes on in the decision itself, can be very powerful. 
Yeah, it's an excellent example because it not only shows how an essentially costless intervention can pay off in huge amounts of cost savings, right? Because it's five times the price for a prescription brand, but also the fact that this is affects everyone because we're talking about healthcare providers because who we usually think of as super rational, super illogical, conscious decision makers, but healthcare providers are people too, and they're busy people. So these things affect them even in, in such a serious context. So I love that you shared that example. So when it comes to creating a choice context, what would you say should be the goal of the designer or the choice architect? You know, I'm an optimist, so I, I hope people have the right goals in mind. Obviously, you could use choice architecture. You can design decisions so you do better and the decision maker does worse. But, you know, I think that becomes an ethical issue just like everything else. Well, we might talk about that later. But, you know, you have to decide what your motives are, what your goals are, what your values are. But for my own feeling, you should try and make decisions both easy for people because then they engage them, they don't take the status quo, and too accurate that they'll get good outcomes, outcomes that are better for them. And those two goals, I think, are essential if you're going to do, uh, design decisions well. Eric, I would like to start uh, to go into more detail and uh, beginning with two concepts that I think are fundamental to understand why the way the elements of choice are designed are so important. And you call the first one the plausible path and the second one assembled preferences. Could you explain to our, our audience these uh, two ideas? Absolutely. I mean, plausible path is there's lots of information we can look at when we make a decision. And we look at a subset of that. Whether it's in a supermarket or on a website, you're only looking at something. In fact, the eye is looking at a very small percentage of what's out there. And so by understanding when information is looked at, and more importantly, what's not looked at, you actually can get a really good feel for what will affect the decision. And choice architecture works in part by making some information easier than others. Let me use a, a kind of new example that I, I like a lot. Um, it's from some research we're doing and something you see every day on, on the internet. When you go to a web page, you're, so, you're given a prompt for cookies. You all have seen these and they say, here's your chance to manage cookies. Now, the reason I'm on the internet is to find out what time the the ball game is on or what movie I want to watch or you know go shopping. I don't want to manage cookies, but they impose this goal on me. And typically it says, do you want to accept our default our settings? Now there's no default per se. I have to make a choice. So there's typically a bright blue or orange button that says, yes, I'll, you know, uh, it says, no, let me go on. Or a gray button, often on a gray background, that says, um, let me uh, manage cookies. And then afterwards, if I did that, there's like four different kinds of cookie types. I have to read what a functional cookie is, what another kind of cookie is. And then after all that, I get to make a choice. Now, what they've done is made the plausible path for keeping the status quo extraordinarily easy. And they've presented a time where it's not my goal to manage cookies. And what they've also done is actually made it very hard to manage cookies. So that, that change in fluency of ease really matters and really keeps people from engaging in cookie management. 
I know this and I still am continually change pressing the orange button. So that that's a plausible path. Um, now that's about external, what's in the outside world. It's what we're seeing through our eyes. There's another important source of information for memory. And that's what we call a simple preferences. I recall things to make a choice. You know, if I'm sitting in a menu, it's true, it says, um, you know, do you want the impossible burger? But what I'm actually thinking about is not that. I have to recall things. So my favorite example, this is a classic study done by Erwin um, Levin in the 80s. And they actually did this by actually frying hamburger in the lab at the University of Iowa. And they labeled the hamburgers. They were either going to be 7% lean or 30% fat. Now, you can do math. You know that they're the same thing. They add up to the same thing. But when you ask people what you think about the two, they think about very different burgers. It's the same meat. They're smelling, they're tasting the same meat. But they're recalling fat means my arteries are getting clogged. It's juicy, so it's going to taste better. Lean, it's building muscle mass. It's good for me. It has protein. So the burger is two different burgers because of how we assemble our preferences in memory. And so the label, which is choice architecture, actually changes what you know, the, the, actually the amount we will pay for the hamburger, how we taste the burger. So that's what I mean by simple preferences. Okay, great. I think it's uh, important to start with these two concepts before going uh, uh, deeper. Um, another concept which is absolutely uh, key, uh, often we decide by default, meaning just by following what the designer has selected as the option that happens if we take no different action. I know that uh, Kasunshin is used to call nudge by default the golden medal of nudge. Could you describe this way of deciding? Absolutely. And I think it actually gets to be a very good example of how understanding the process so something we know about nudges is, in general is they've become a very broad range of things. You know, in the book Nudge, Sunstein and Thaler, I should say Thaler and Sunstein, quite clearly think of choice architecture nudging as the same thing. Now nudging means everything from norms to lots of things. The default is a pure piece of choice architecture. Every choice has to have something that happens if you don't make a choice. You know, as we showed years ago, it affects things like whether or not you're going to be an organ donor. The question is, how does that happen? And this is where the process matters. I can become an organ donor, or I can choose the express shipping, whatever the default is, simply because it's easy. It's a plausible path. I want to minimize effort, so I click. I don't read the form. I just click continue. Okay. But there's something else that's really an assembled preference. I will think about the default first. That is, I'll think about what it would be like to be a donor or what it would be like to not be a donor first. And because memory has this very important property that the first category interferes with the second, I'm going to think much more about the first category than the second. It's a whole theory that Elko Weber and I have developed called query theory. And what that means is the defaults work not only by plausible path, people's need to make decisions quickly, but also because there are something that preferences differently given different defaults. So it's, it's and actually it turns out that 
you can do a good job predicting the size of the Travolta effect by seeing how powerful those two ways of happening are. Mm -hmm. Could you give us, uh, give us a, a concrete example of the power of changing the default to change behaviors? A absolutely. The one that I, I've I talked a little bit about, of course, is organ donation, and that, but that's very famous. So let me move on to little things like some work we did years ago for a German auto manufacturer. That auto manufacturer um, had, it turns out, changed the default on every option. So in Germany, by the way, almost all cars are built to order. You go to the website, you don't buy a car off the lot. Now, this, this company, who I call Glam, German large auto manufacturer, it also gives you an idea of the kind of car they built. What they did, did was actually every option was the cheapest by default. So you got this smallest engine. You got not a wood console, but you know plastic console. Um, you got the cheapest paint. And we asked, why was this? And they actually said, I don't know. Some guy in IT made the decision. Now, you could argue maybe some, that guy in IT thought they were here helping consumers buy cheap cars. But it's not what people want. People don't always want the cheapest option, particularly in Germany, when you're going to be on the Autobahn that until recently, large sections or until recently, it was clear large sections were, had no speed limit. The smallest engine might actually not be very safe. So actually, you know, consumers are better off if you've picked another option. And so we did a series of experiments. We played with what the right default was. And it turns out that consumers like the cars at least as well when we change the defaults to be different. And more importantly for our friends at Glam, the revenue for each car went up by about 4,000 euros. And this is simply by changing one line of HTML code. I, most marketing is not that effective. Uh, you explain, Eric, that decision by default is often very powerful thanks to three main psychological uh, mechanisms, which are ease, endorsement, and endowment. Could you briefly explain how default work, in fact? Right. So it, when I was talking earlier, I, talk, I got you two of these. Ease essentially is a plausible path argument that it's easier to choose the default so I can get the decision done with more quickly. Endowment is really goes a type of assembled preference because I think first about what I have and what I have, at least in my mind, is what's been pre-checked. So to go back to the example from our friends at Glam, if I was defaulted into a three liter engine, I think about why that's good first. So I'm endowed with it. It's very much like the famous endowment effects of a Kahneman connection failure. You know, it's like owning a mug. I think about what is good about the mug first. Endorsement is something different. It's actually sort of in between. It sort of says maybe it's the case that Choice Architect thinks this is what I should buy. So it's interesting because if it's, you know, my employer, I think, and I'm defaulting to a certain level of savings for pensions. Uh, might be that I think that's what the employer thinks is the right level. If it's Microsoft, maybe I'm not so sure that they have my best interest in mind. But endorsement is a third path. And we've done a big meta-analysis. And 
you know, first off, there's some questions, as I'm sure you guys know, about the variability in different kinds of choice architecture and actually nudge effects. And what we show is that, that by and large, defaults are large, but there's a lot of variability. Some work very, very well. You get 90% of the people shifting. Others don't work at all. And we do a meta-analysis that says, basically, you have to get those three sources all working to get big effects. And when you don't, you get weaker effects. So that's work with John Nikimovitz, uh, Shannon Duncan, and Elke Weber. And it's actually, I think, predates a lot of the current controversy because it says, look, if you're serious, and by serious, I mean practically interested in defaults or in choice architecture in large, you need to understand how it's working. And that's why I think these three things, endorsement, endowment, and ease are so important. So Eric, when it comes to designing elements of choice, the designer or the choice architect has to deal with three main questions, which are the number of choices that are offered, the order of the options, which you mentioned earlier, and the way that each option is described. So let's start with the number of options. We all know the famous guideline, less is more, which you know is a simple heuristic that is usually good good guideline, but it really does seem like good choice architecture is a lot more complex than one rule fits all. So could you collab elaborate a little bit about this question about the number of options? I know in your book you talked about fluency and accuracy. Right. So it's really kind of a an important guideline for most people who are used to presenting more options. It's an antidote. The, the notion that less is more is like an anecdote, antidote to the belief economists have that more options are always better. Okay, that, that's where that's useful. It's not useful because more options are sometimes better. I mean, when I add an option, I'm doing two things. I'm basically making it harder for you to make the decision because you have to now think about two or three or four things. So that's not good. But I'm also adding some variety in the options. And unless they know exactly it is what it is you want, you're going to have to see the options to figure out what you want. So an example I, I think about a lot is presenting options to kids who are choosing schools. In the U.S., we often uh, think kids should choose their high school. And in New York, it turns out they get a book that looks like an old school phone directory that has 769 different schools, clearly too many. At the same time, you wouldn't want to give people just two schools. They have they vary a lot. Some are schools you go for college preparation. Some you go to to learn how to be um, um, a dancer. So obviously, you need to give people a certain number of choice choices. So I think there's a trade-off, and a large part of what is good design is getting people the right choices. And when you don't know what those are, giving them choices in a way that makes sense. So friends of mine actually went and took that 769 school list and changed it into a list of 30, simply by saying schools that are too far away that you wouldn't consider, we're not going to put. And they found the kids chose schools that were better for them. They got into better schools with a smaller list. But notice, if you went to five, that would not be a good idea either. So it's this balance between getting people enough variety so they can find the right school, what I call accuracy and fluency, making it easy enough for them to make the choice. Notice, by the way, fluency can be done by using good fonts. There's lots of things that you can do to help fluency 
that are, are not just about the number of options. Absolutely. And so the next of the three uh, principles for choice architecture that we're discussing now is the order, which you alluded to earlier. So the order of options is very important. So can you elaborate a little bit more on why order is so important and what some of your key learnings or guidelines are in this area? So here's the kind of, I think, interesting thing about order. I, I almost thought seriously about not including because the literature seems very complicated. But it's because there are two things going on with order. One is people give up too soon. So if you give me a list of 500 wines, I'm not going to look at all of them. I'm going to look at some subset of those. And the ones that are first are the ones that I'm going to look at. And so they have real advantages. And so be, if all of the things being equal, you don't know anything else, first, second, third is always better. But there's something else that happens, particularly if um, I don't control attention. And the example I use, uh, which might be of interest, is Eurovision Song Contests. Notice in the Eurovision Song Contest, you don't get to go back and see the Moldavian candidate. Basically, you see them one after another. It turns out um, people who've looked at this, Vondi van der Roon is a, a famous researcher on this, show there's a big advantage to being last. Why? Well, the reason last is because you've forgotten all the ones that went beforehand. So again, memory, assembled preferences play a role. So again, it's the notion that plausible paths make a lot of sense. I'm going to give up too soon. But if I don't have control of the path, I'm going to only remember the last ones. So plausible paths say be first, assembled preferences is be last. And understanding the role of those two is the designer's job. And that's partly how much control does the decision maker have? Are they flipping pages or are you showing them the alternatives? And then finally, there's the question of how the options are described. So again, could you tell us what you've learned from the research about how to be successful at describing options in ways that are useful for choosers? So let's let's take a very simple example. Um, you know, let's talk about something as simple as price. You know, that should be simple. You're going to talk about it's $9.99. Now, I can express that lots of different ways. I could say maybe that I want to look at price per use, divide by the number of uses. And that's going to be very different. Then people are going to be able to compare everything on the same unit. Um, another example would be I could say, here's how much you would you spend for this over the course of a year. So when I go into class and tell people, how much do you pay for cable TV or streaming services? They'll say $9.99 a month. If I say, well, but how about if I tell you that's almost $120 a year, they say, oh, that's a lot of money. I could take the same attribute price and say, well, that's a few pennies a day. And then they feel much better about it. That the way we ex express these attributes, and there's lots of examples. Gas mileage is a famous one. Um, I can describe gas mileage in terms of miles per gallons or, or gallons per mile. They're very you get very different choices depending upon that. And the key there is the scale is not linear. There are many examples of this, but you as a designer decide what the attribute is. It's not just the engineers. They tell you what the input is, but you as a designer actually get to say, how are we going to communicate that to people? Absolutely. Framing is something we talk about a lot in our day-to-day -day work and how powerful and important it is. So there's a very specific choice architecture that you call choice engines. Could you tell us more on that particularly interesting case? 
Yeah, so choice engines are a, a term that's been floating around for the fact that we are now making choices on interactive environments. Although an interactive environment could include a salesperson because they answer questions. That they actually, we actually control the information we look at much more. And the designers, whether they be Netflix, Robinhood, or anyone, or Amazon, actually control the environment. So there are lots of things that go on there, but two things. One is the chance to customize the environment. So let's take our go back to our school example. If I know you're looking for college uh, prep schools, I can customize that web page so it has only college prep schools. That is a way of presenting you with the right options. Another thing you can do is you can actually help people with comprehending the options. So you might not know what an attribute is. So you can actually have balloon help that tells you what that is. You can do it badly or you can do it well, but certainly uh, that's the case. My favorite example is the Netflix uh, landing page, which is customized. There are over 30 million Netflix pages in use, customized almost to every person. Um, and they do it, of course, through A-B testing to find out what's more likely to get you to keep watching Netflix. Um, so it's actually quite interesting. Now, a large part of that is, you know, they do all of everything we can talk about in choice architecture. There's an order of the movies on the screen that matters. How they describe them, comedies, dramedies, is, is, so that's attributes. And finally, defaults. Until recently, um, you would actually get a default um, that was the video would start playing, which would annoy the heck out of most users. It's a default they didn't want. Who wants to hear, you know, the 100 blaring when you're trying to look at something else? You're trying to look for a romantic comedy. Now, very deep down inside the bowels of the Netflix interface now, as of maybe two years ago, there's a place you can turn that off. But that's the wrong default. I wasn't even aware of, so I'm glad to know that. <laughs> um, so my final question. I can't remember where it was, but believe me, it's there. Yeah, all right. You've, you've just given our listeners very valuable information today. <laughs> So my final question before I hand it back to Eric Singler uh, is a really important one about the ethics of choice architecture. So you make it very clear in your book that some designers create choice architecture in a non-ethical way, meaning it's not at the advantage of the choosers, but it's only in the interest of the organization or the designer. But then you also write, well, some have questioned whether choice architecture is ethical. I believe the opposite. Ignoring choice architecture is ethically wrong. Can you elaborate on this? Sure. I mean, going back to something we said at the beginning, if there's no neutral choice architecture, you are going to affect people for better or for worse. So, you know, there, there's no option to ignore choice architecture. Now, the thing that's actually becoming much more apparent in the last three or four years is different kinds of people are affected to different extents by choice architecture. I give you a credit card that's defaulted. It turns out in our research, the people who are most likely to be affected by the default are the people who know the least about credit cards. So the ones who are most vulnerable to choice architecture are the people who turn out to be not sophisticated, typically poor and less educated. So ignoring choice architecture actually is giving those people a disadvantage. Just to make it clear, if I'm, uh, if I'm picking the wrong credit card, the people who are most likely 
to be hurt by that credit card are the ones who are going to be hurt by that choice architecture. It's unethical to not pay attention to choice architecture because you're likely to be doing things wrong. Those very vulnerable people actually are the most at risk. So if you don't pay attention to choice architecture, you're actually creating harm. If you pay attention to choice architecture and do it right, you actually can reduce disparities. I th think it's a really important point that I, I, I'm afraid is, is neglected in, in many of these discussions. Uh, thanks a lot, Eric. We are close to the end of our conversation, but uh, I would like to end by asking some final question. Uh, first one is related to organization. I believe that the concept of uh, choice architecture could be translated to organization, meaning employees, uh, managers make daily decisions, small, big ones, and are influenced by the way their options are designed. Do you think that the leadership team or the leaders could help to create a relevant environment, which means within the organization to encourage what I call winning behavior like cooperation, innovation, diversity, maybe sustainability and well-being for sure? Um, absolutely. I mean, there are even lots of examples of this. Let me give you one about efficiency, the other about sustainability. One is something I've adopted as a personal practice, which is um, whenever I send an, a, a request for an appointment with someone or we discuss a date, I set a default time, followed immediately by the phrase, I'm flexible. But if I say Wednesday at 9 a.m., that's going to make it, A, for me as the designer better because I've picked a time that's good for me. But also what it's done is made the, that person, I have to consider all possible times where they find a they say whether that time is, is worth it or not, but it's important to say I'm flexible. So it's clear that they can actually suggest alternatives. Another one is, and you know, this is not news, is sustainability is all about choices. You know, consumers are making choices all the time between electricity suppliers, between cars, etc. And you know, it's well known that giving people the right default for many of these cases, they will stick with a sustainable option. So it's really quite clear that if you give the default to a green energy supplier, its market share will go up and stick. So in general, I think if, if you want an organization um, to do the right thing, you have to give them the right choice architecture. It's again, ignoring people, ignoring choice architecture means people, particularly people who are least capable of changing the given choice architecture, are at risk. And so, you know, number examples are myriad, getting the right default retirement plans, getting all sorts of things right, sorting things so the right pension plan is first. I mean, we could do another show on this. Yeah, that's clear. So what would be your advice to a leader who would like to use choice architecture uh, with this objective in mind, well-being and efficacy? I mean, I think basically ask yourself before you send out any communication, email or otherwise, is what's the choice architecture that's implicit? And if someone is going to use the, you know, use that choice architecture, will they make a better or worse decision for them? So for well-being, you clearly, you know, you, you could do seven o'clock a.m. offsites or you might not. That's, an, that's a decision of that, that you could think about. But you could also say the default would be something that's at family-friendly hours. 
and then change that or the first or one in the list or what button is brighter literally all these things are going to make a difference and they'll make a difference cumulatively a lot of choice architecture is actually interactive the elements don't work separately so i think that there's lots of lots of potential there and lots of fun research to do at the organizational level yeah yeah we are very convinced about this uh, at the bvnh consulting uh, maybe one final uh, question, Eric, uh, is about your perspective regarding the future of uh, behavioral uh, science and maybe your hope. So, you know, th there's been some controversy lately, uh, which I think is healthy. The controversy roughly is that maybe we, it's been oversold. And, you know, I, I say this in the beginning of the book, actually that everyone talks about their best example. Everyone talks about defaults and they talk about Dan Goldstein and I did this research in organization. There's, you know, a 50% difference between opt-in and opt-out. And you're not always going to get a 50% difference. You sometimes you'll get bigger differences. There some of the studies with um, using defaults to change energy suppliers are even bigger. So it's not a question of it not being there. It's a question of understanding when it's big. The second thing, which I think is really important, is I hope we stop talking about nudges as if they're all the same thing. And I hope we focus instead on each individual intervention and how they work. So what I've tried to do with choice architecture, at least, is think about a simple paths. I'm sorry. I've tried to think about plausible paths and a simple preferences as two really big drivers. If you understand those, you can say, this is where this is going to work. This is where it's not going to work. You can even invent new kinds of choice architecture. You know, that bright orange button versus the gray button, that's nothing we know about. That's not a default, although sometimes people call it that. That's a new kind of choice architecture. What's going on with that? I think we're into very interesting times. And the result of having better science, we'll have a better choice architecture. So uh, thanks a lot. Uh... Eric, it was a, a really insightful uh, conversation. Thank you so much. Great, great to talk to both of you. Is there anything, Eric, that you'd like to leave our listeners with, perhaps where they can find out more about you and your work? Sure. Um, there's a website about the book, the alt, the elements of choice.com. And of course, I'm Eric Johnson, eric.johnson at Columbia. Um, and you can look that up on the web too. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.